Welcome to the BPA University Podcast. This episode, A Cookie-less Environment in the Media Marketplace, What's Next? Part 1, was originally broadcast on October 7th, 2021. For more BPA University Podcasts, check out iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your shows. Well, let's now jump into our cookie-less environment. And as Glenn introduced Angelina Eng, Angelina is a board member of BPA as an FYI, full transparency, but previously has a, um, a history both on the agency side and with client. Most recently at Morgan Stanley as an executive director and previously at Merkel and at Dentsu. And Shelly Singh joining us from the West Coast as a senior vice, sorry, senior vice president of product management. Uh, again, a big history on project product management side at PayPal, at uh, Yahoo, at Say, and at uh, Cirrus. I welcome both of you, and I'll turn it over to Angelina to, to kick off and take us through what's happening in the cookie-less world, or I should say third-party cookie-less world. Angelina? Thank you, Glenn. And uh, um, just one one quick uh, correction. Shaley uh, Singh is actually part of IAB Tech Lab, which is the uh, sister company to IAB, just for clarification. So he, uh, IAB Tech Lab is the organization that helps to develop standardization and interoperable solutions for the digital ecosystem, while I'm on the IAB side, uh, which is more on the business end, where we are working with uh, business executives to uh, deal with some of the challenges and changes that are happening in the digital ecosystem. So just for clarification. So, um, <laughs> um so uh, I'm not, uh, these next three slides kind of goes through a chronological order of what some of the changes that have been happening. Um, so uh, real quickly, uh, changes were starting to happen in 2017 when Apple first introduced um, their privacy um, um, products and solutions, including ITP and so forth, uh, which is intelligence tracking prevention. Um, but starting in June of 2019, Mozilla released this enhanced tracking uh, protection on their browser, which was uh, blocking cookies from known third-party trackers by default. And over time, you see that Google and Mozilla and Apple have made some um, really uh, big steps in moving towards, uh, towards a privacy-centric, privacy-by-default type of solution. Uh, Google had announced Privacy Sandbox early last year. Uh, and then subsequently, Mozilla started releasing additional enhancements to delete cookies every day and blocking cookies from certain known trackers and really partitioning some of those uh, some of that data so that uh, so that there wasn't any abuse in terms of being able to uh, track uh, cross-site tracking and, 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 and linking of uh, uh, user data to uh, to uh, cookies and, and so forth. If you go on to the next slide. Um, uh, the, this last couple of months, uh, Mozilla released their uh, total cookie protection, which separates uh, the cookies from uh, into uh, different what we call jars for each website that uh, that is visited. Um, uh, Google uh, launched their Flock Origin trial. Apple released their iOS 14.5, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit more about what uh, what that means, and then Google. Did announce that they're delaying privacy sandbox till 2023. Initially, it was going to be the end of 2022, uh, but due to progress um, and um, some some uh, you know you know sophisticated, complicated, complex infrastructure, it needs to be delayed. Um, Mozilla recently also uh, enhanced their total cookie protection, which is restricting uh, settings to always on in a private browsing. So that means that people are in this incognito mode most of the time. Um, next slide. And then this summer, uh, end of summer, uh, we have Apple released iOS 15. Again, I'll go through what those changes are. Google announced that they are planning to release a data-driven attribution um, as a default mode for Google Ads. They have had that for YouTube and some other products, but now they're bringing it into the uh, uh, Google Ads ecosystem. And late, later this year, they are going to um, release a about this ad, uh, which is very similar to to um, to uh, what a lot of the browsers are doing in terms of giving users choice to uh, to see what data is being used and control what ads that they see. 
All right. What I might do then, just remind everybody, as Glenn said earlier on, that we have handouts available to you today. There's obviously, we always provide you the deck, so that's in your handouts. But take a look, download, I mean, don't look at it now, but download when you can. Uh, what we have in there is the Chromium project, which comes from the Google, uh, the Chrome website. And that will explain a bit to you what the privacy sandbox is. But there is also uh, a lengthy document from IAB Europe on this so that if you need more background, that's there as a handout um, as well. And what was the fourth? Uh, oh, flock blockers. Angelina, tell everyone, I mean, what does flock stand for? Fettered rated? Uh, learning of cohorts. Of cohorts. So, so that uh, the idea around flock is that the browser is capturing information um, looking uh, uh, and categorizing or bucketing different browsers into cohorts. So like-for-like uh, -like behavior goes into a cohort. Initially was a specific, what we call a cohort ID. So an ID would be associated to a browser and that would be used to help uh, for prospecting and targeting. Uh, the challenge with that is that a lot of people, um, which I kind of go through later, but the, the, um, what, uh, the challenge is that uh, since Google is controlling it, not a lot of data is coming out uh, in terms of who the user is. A lot of the uh, concerns that a lot of publishers have had in terms of uh, 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 audience monetization um, from, um, uh, that they can't control, uh, this helps eliminate that. But um, it, it was a bit of a challenge because the sample size and, and the way the flock IDs were coming in, uh, some companies were still able to uh, through testing, be able to associate certain behaviors to individuals. So um, they're, they're reevaluating what Flock is going to look like um, moving forward. So the article that I provided to everybody for handout uh, is a story about Amazon and how they were looking to block Flock so that Google could not track the behavior of buyers as they visit the Amazon site. And in fact, the article goes on to say that it might even be that Amazon could spread misinformation into the flock so that it would confuse Google about Amazon's buyers. So that's just a, a handout that's one more of curiosity than anything else, but I think everyone should uh, have a look at that and, and give that a read. And so we continue on with the chrono. Yeah, um, last uh, Android 12 uh, is going to have a very similar feature as Apple uh, with their ATT prompt. This, uh, their version is allowing um, users to uh, agree to tracking or not tracking and if um, and limiting the ability to to capture uh, a mobile ad ID. Um, so very similar again to, to what Apple is doing. And then Apple is going to schedule a release of iOS 16 sometime in 2022. We're not quite sure what those features are, but we can rest assured that it's going to be continue on this privacy centric road. And so we would, you know, we had said this expression earlier on, it's not, it's shifting from tracking by default to privacy by default. And so what we mean by privacy by default is that all of these platforms are now setting that standard to be turned off, right? So that if you want to get ads, you have to opt in. Whereas today, or not today, but in the recent past, the default well, was clarification, on. Uh, personalized ads. Yeah. Right. Or cuss, right. Um, people will still get ads. It just won't be as relevant if they don't opt in. Right. Is that safe but to the, say, Shelly? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's an important point for a lot of people to realize that now as people get this new software, the default setting is going to be um, that they have to opt in. And that's the big change, right? Yeah, and you know, uh, and and the result of that, or the what, what kind of is a catalyst, is this ever-growing concern around user privacy. Uh, we're seeing um, there are different levels of um, awareness about uh, about how consumer data is being used, and there's an increase of distrust across uh, of corporations. You know, especially given like what happened this past week with Facebook and the 60 Minutes and things like that. There, you know, companies are starting to distrust ad tech. Um, and then you have governments who are reacting, um, and uh, we have several 
you know, international, national, and local uh, regulations regarding privacy, and they're all, um, there's not one that is a, a national, federal legislation right now, um, and it's being, it's very complex. And then you have all the different platforms that are involved in the, in the ecosystem who are developing their own solutions or um, telling, telling publishers and advertisers that they have, you know, a, 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 a great solution to help with identity and, and measurement and so forth. Um, but yet you see uh, an increase in walled gardens and a more siloed, fragmented ecosystem. Uh, from a consumer privacy, there's, you know, a lot to consider, especially given the fact that users' preferences are, you know, um, a wide spectrum. You have from people that don't want uh, to be tracked at all to, you know, personalize all my experience. And then you have a, a, a chunk of people that are in the middle, kind of like being very selective on who, to, what to opt into and what not to opt into. So overall, the trends that we're seeing is this uh, concept of don't track online, uh, the blocking of third-party cookies, the limiting the use of first-party cookies, including uh, UTM parameters and such like that. Um, don't learn about habits, so limiting access to browser history, uh, uh, causing uh, friction to minimize the opportunity to, to manage frequencies, um, the loss of identifiers, so we're here, you know, the limitations of mobile device IDs, user identifiers, and really limiting the sharing of first-party data to third, party, uh, to third parties, and then the masking of PII, which I'll go into, but there's you know, a new feature coming out from Apple um, that uh, allows for the masking of PII data. And then there's the obfuscation of IP address, Wi-Fi address, and limited use of geodata, which is resulting in uh, more limited uh, attribution reports, attribution uh, restrictions uh, on latency, and the number of conversions that can be tracked, limiting the data sets that can be measured, um, providing only aggregate data, um, and, and not allowing for uh, event-level data for, for media campaigns, and then there a, a delay in those signals and a delay in those reporting. So a lot going on in this space right now. So, Angelina, there was a couple of acronyms there. PII, personally identifiable information. Get that. Um, but there was another one you mentioned, UTM, I think. A UTM. So, usually, like, uh, I'm using a Google Analytics uh, reference, but it's a link decoration. So, uh, an, an appending some sort of uh, track, um, uh, uh, putting a piece of code at the end of your URLs straight in, uh, so that your site analytics can categorize and classify um, the data, so the source that it's coming from, the type of type of source it's coming from, and you know what specific creatives or links that uh, a user came through. So those those what we what I'll call UTM parameters, but the site analytics parameters that are being passed through from the media campaigns are being stripped um, or the, limiting the, the the passing of that data from page to page on an advertiser site. And this this of course applies whether. I, as a publisher, sold the ad direct to the advertiser or it was done programmatically. Correct. Right. Okay. So, so, so going through a, some quick stats, um, why, why we're talking about this, if you look at the line share of uh, the number of percentage of people that are using Chrome and Safari, just only Chrome and Safari, we're talking about 85% of the U.S. market. So they have a, a pretty big... Uh, there's some pretty big implications when it comes to um, when it comes to these changes, where it's affecting advertisers, publishers, uh, ad tech, and data tech companies as well. And then on the next slide, we break it down into operating system, uh, right? So uh, where uh, where if you think about this, uh, the you know what's being affected on mobile versus desktop, we're seeing about 74% of that. Uh, share is also coming from Chrome and Safari, uh, where it's about 25, almost, uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, uh, pretty big share. So with all the changes that Chrome and Safari are making, this is this is impacting a lot of publishers in the marketplace. And if you drill down into the next slide, yep. um, going into Apple, right? So uh, we're now into iOS 15. Uh, you can see that 78% of the marketplace have have already upgraded to uh, a higher version of iOS 14.5. So that only released in April. 
Um, and if you go into the next slide, you can see that the adoption, uh, oh, is it this one? Oh, sorry, uh, I'll go through that one. But with iOS 14.5, uh, Flurry reports that about 15% of devices have opted into um, to tracking at the default level um, on their device. So that means that in their general settings, uh, allowing for tracking or not tracking is enabled. So about 15% have enabled that feature. The next slide, a little bit scarier, is of those 15% people, 16% of them have opted into tracking across different apps. So the average opt-in rate whenever a user is prompted with that ATT prompt of do you uh, allow tracking or not, there's only about 16% that's opting in. So that's a, that's a little bit scary. And then if you go into the next slide, um, you'll see how the adoption curve for iOS 14.5 kind of uh, skyrocketed. So it, it launched at the end of April and literally by uh, end of June, early July, you can see how 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 it's how it's progressed. So about again, 70 according to Reemerge IO, about 79% of devices uh, as of last month, uh, last two weeks ago, have upgraded. Wow. The next slide wanna, is. Can we talk about the SKA Ed network, so everyone understands what that is? Yeah, if you go into the next slide. Um, okay. Oh, there it is. This, yep. yep. So this slide says that, you know, and I'll have Shaley explain SK Ad Network because it's, it's a little bit out of my league, but there's about a 52% adoption of SK Ad Network according to Reemerge.io. Go ahead, Shaley. Yeah, so SK Ad Network is basically stands for StoreKid Ad Network. Uh, that's kind of Apple's, uh, once they introduce the, uh, uh, the ADT or authorization for uh, using the IDFA, uh, so uh, so they provided an alternative uh, on how to actually track your installs and attribution uh, within the advertising in the apps, and for that they created uh, SCAD Network, which is a privacy-safe uh, way of understanding attribution on the campaigns. So you don't really track by each user ID uh, that you know uh, as to who installed and when. Instead of that, uh, Apple provided something called a SCAD Network ID that all of the ad networks and their uh, you know measurement partners typically called like mobile measurement partners mmps uh, and and uh, they can all uh, register uh, and get a scad network id uh, from apple and then the publisher that is the uh, publisher of the app includes all of those uh, scad network ids that the publisher works with or their partners work with in their app so what happens then is that when uh, an ad is shown and when an attribution event occurs, like an app install or an app, app download, Apple then uh, will send a message uh, to all of these uh, SCAD network IDs that are part of the app that uh, this installation uh, on this campaign uh, or this event on this campaign has happened. So that way you're not really getting it by user, but you're, you're getting all the information for a particular campaign in an aggregated manner. Uh, you can understand what the attribution is, uh, what the download and install numbers are. And and I think so. And Shelly, can you talk about like what are the implications if 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 a partner doesn't adopt SK Ad Network? What does that mean? So what that means is that one, of course, uh, uh, you will not get any of these uh, attribution signals that Apple's providing. Um, so you're you're uh, you're sort of on your own at that point uh, with your own methods to determine that, and uh, especially like if the user is not authorized you to use their IDFA, uh, then it will be very difficult for you to understand uh, where and how the uh, uh, attribution occurred. And the IDFA is the identification for advertising is that not what it means right that's the id for advertising that the that apple has provided uh from from a long time now um and uh, that, that's the one that's been used to cross track like you know if i i i, I downloaded I, I clicked on an ad to install on this app i know the idfa from there and the idfa is user plus device specific so when i actually install that other app that i clicked on I get the same IDFA, so that's the method that was being used to track, okay, so how many actual installs, unique installs did I get? So if you don't have uh, uh, SKAD network IDs now, 
and you're not getting the signal from Apple and the user is not authorized, you don't even have an IDFA, uh, then it's not possible for you to uh, track uh, unique uh, downloads and the actual number of downloads and installs. Right. So for the B2B publishing community, it, it's we've referenced apps. So if I'm not using an app as a B2B publisher of my own, I just have a website, I have e-newsletters, I'm carrying ads. Does this impact that? Web ads no. and e-newsletter ads? Okay. It it doesn't. So but 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 the B2B publishers may also be if if they don't have a app at all, then it probably doesn't impact them at all. Um, but if they have apps that they advertise for people to install, then they wouldn't be able to track uh, the installations. Right. But if if we just I'm going to go back just a little bit here, Angelina, on the slides. When we talk about uh, Apple's iOS and we talk about operating system penetration, this stuff does affect publishers, B2B publishers in particular, as we address them, their websites, their e-newsletters. This is not about apps. This is about the browser. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But we need to separate it's about the device two. and the browser and the apps. Yeah. So yeah. wherever, so even for a publisher, if you're running, running your own uh, campaigns in Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, you've probably seen a decrease in the number of page views and conversions that are um, that you are for, if you're targeting users uh, with with ads to to come to your website. That is affecting you as well as think about for our advertisers. Um, uh, the challenge is that with with less tracking means that they're seeing less conversion. So their platform, their programmatic platform, their ad servers are reporting less numbers for iOS, which is then uh, they're either manually opting out of uh, manually shifting budget over to desktop and Android, or the programmatic algorithms are automatically doing it for them. Right. And how does this impact my ability as a B2B publisher to know that my e-newsletter is being opened or clicked through if the tracking's turned off? Yeah, well, it's actually going to get harder in a few, um, or, or it's starting to roll out with iOS for, uh, 15. Yeah, 15, 15. Um, yeah. Where, they're, where, where they're restricting the pixels from firing in, uh, in a newsletter. So, um, if if you've been having um, if you've had pixels that are placed like your images or or a one by one or some sort or even that um, all of that information is going to be a, a lot harder to track. Okay. Sorry about that. All right, let's continue on then. So, iOS yep, so 15. Some, Good segue. Yeah. So some of the components uh, that have been released uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, is the mail privacy protection, again, which is preventing senders from seeing your IP address or if you've opened up an email. Uh, there's the a, uh, APP, App Privacy Report, which is allowing users to see how often each app is accessing their information, um, and then uh, especially within the last seven days and who, uh, who they're sharing it with, and it allows uh, which apps have contacted other domains and how recently they have contacted them. So it kind of shows a full transparency uh, of how your information is being shared. Uh, there's also the hide my email feature, which is allowing people to provide random email addresses instead of using their personal email address uh, when, uh, when they're registering or signing up for an email or newsletter. Um, so think of, for example, if you don't, if uh, this, this kind of will be a challenge for identity solutions because they've relied on uh, they're relying on email. If users start um, uh, selecting this feature, they will have different email addresses, which will still uh, feed into their own uh, own personal email address. It's just that it's being masked, uh, and it can be in, uh, customized or uh, individualized for each each site that the uh, user is registering for. Does that make sense? So, so then, yeah. So, as a B two B publisher, if I have a registration form on my website either for a white paper or a newsletter or for whatever reason, do you mean that as a person enters an email to register, that gets masked? Or no, I would enter my G. Hansen at BPAWW and that's what would appear. No, it would, it, it could, 
it would create a new email address that's masked. It would still go into your inbox, but it would be rerouted through that email. So I couldn't use it as a match code now? No. Moving no. forward, yeah. Now the question is how many people would likely use this feature? I don't know, Shaley, do you have any, do you think that this, this could be? So this is limited to those who have subscribed to the, it, it's still in beta, and uh, it's limited to those who have subscribed to the iCloud. Uh, so not everyone gets this feature. It's, it's think of it as like a sort of a VPN kind of an environment where uh, if you are a subscriber of the iCloud uh, and uh, only those people can get this feature. And you have to turn it on. It's not by default. Um, yeah. For example, like I'm not an iCloud subscriber. So when I register, you'll always get my email. Okay. Now the question is, will that last, right? So that's that's the question but anyway yeah. um the next one isn't as important so we can just go on forward well, it's a, um, yeah, okay. yep well but uh, I, I think the second bullet point though is important there angelina that the cost per is increasing well yes the cost pers are definitely increasing um well i meant on the last page but on this oh, page oh, yes okay. so yeah so here's what we've heard um i actually had a, a meeting that i hosted last week we had about 75 people join that I'll talk about that a little later, but many of them have said that they're having real difficulty scaling with Apple iOS. They're seeing cost per increase with CPM, CPC, CPAs across across the board, and a lot of publishers are feeling that strain. Uh, strain. Um, most of the advertisers are see since they're seeing higher CPMs are either canceling or pausing their campaigns in both direct and, and programmatic buys. And as I mentioned before, a lot of that programmatic inventory is shifting over to non-iOS devices. So if you go on the next slide, I think I talked about that a little bit. Yeah, so a point of clarification, I think you said CPM, we said CPA here, so cost per acquisition. Um, do you mean that this is driving cost per thousand, that it's driving publisher rates up? Yes, so if users want to target Apple devices, we're seeing CPM rates go up just to target those individuals. So right. uh, spend is remaining the same, rates are, are a lot higher, cost per is a lot higher, but the volume of impressions, clicks, and conversions have gone down dramatically. Right. Because of the defaults. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, which results in less inventory for publishers to monetize, um, since a lot, not a lot of people are wanting to buy um, iOS. Uh, we're, we're hearing that remarketing and retargeting on Apple devices are a lot harder. Um, and then uh, going back to the SK Ad Network, we're hearing that the numbers that are being um, delivered through the SK Ad Network aren't actually jiving with what they're seeing on their own uh, data platforms. So the oh. volume is either uh, mismatched or they're seeing more conversions coming from SK Ad Network than they're actually getting. Um, so the, there's been a combination of diff, uh, uh, different numbers or, and different experiences across the board and it's not consistent. Um, so I mentioned before programmatic and bid-based buys like in Facebook uh, uh, and Twitter, the inventories are shifting more towards Android and desktop. Uh, we're hearing that there's um, more manual optimizations that are occurring um, and many feel, um, I don't remember what this point is, but many, many feel frustrated uh, over the situation. But this could mean an opportunity for B2B publishers. You know, if you're saying that there's a shift away from Facebook and more towards, in terms of a device, towards Android and desktop, that would might signal for B2B publishers an opportunity. Well, I don't think spend is going down. For Facebook personally. Um, I don't know, Shaley, what you think, but I, I think that there's still enough scale for Android um, and desktop. It's just that they're they're not seeing the same results, but I think spend is still remaining the same. Not yeah, well, we'll find out soon with the Q, Q3 results come out later this month, <laughs> the actual numbers and actual yeah. impact. Um, okay. Okay, so going through uh, uh, Chrome's privacy sandbox proposal, there is actually four pillars that they're focusing on. I'm not going to go through these uh, verbatim. But the first is around limiting 
uh, the ability to cross-site track. So they're implementing uh, um, the ability or limiting uh, the ability for companies to fingerprint audiences or stitch audiences together. Uh, um, they feel that there's just too much information that's being collected by the marketplace, so they're trying to restrict <coughs> the amount of data that is uh, being provided. Uh, the second is around fighting spam and fraud. They're introducing this concept of trust tokens. Um, it's still being developed. There's uh, questions on how trust tokens work, but basically there's, uh, there's someone who issues uh, the token, uh, a publisher can issue a token, um, and then, uh, and, and, or sorry, uh, some sort of company that issues a token and then, uh, and then a site can verify if that user is a human or not, so they can redeem that token. Uh, it's encrypted, but it allows for matching people uh, versus bots, right? So um, I'm not quite sure how it works, but that's, that's being in development right now. The next slide. Yeah, it's basically like, I think trust token is something that publishers should think about uh, using and we'll do some work next year on, on providing more guidance as uh, we get more details that develops more. Uh, I think it's gonna be a very important tool in uh, fighting fraud uh, and 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 <clears throat> showcasing like your site as, you know, a safe uh, uh, valid traffic site. Uh, so the way it works is like there is, uh, a website or another uh, third-party uh, support uh, that that the website works with, uh, they can uh, they basically ensure that this browser is being used by a human. It's not a bot uh, uh, type of browser. And once they determine that, they can issue a trust token uh, to the browser. Then the other sites can actually use that. Uh, to uh, uh, for the user, like you know, we are we are on the same browser. This traffic is coming from the same browser, which already has a trust token. So not everybody has to use it. So I have to see the the details haven't come out, like how actually others would use it. Uh, but we do plan to work on it and provide guide. And I think it can be a pretty good, important tool. Okay. Um, the third pillar is around showing relevant content. You've probably heard of the terms flock and fledge. Flock is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is around clustering uh, groups of browsers' behaviors together into some sort of cohort, uh, while Fledge is focused on uh, doing the same, but for, for remarketing. Uh, that uh, the information about the user's behavior, what sites that they visit, and all that stuff is not accessible. Uh, it, uh, everything remains in the browser and uh, isn't shared with, uh, with anyone. So the only thing that uh, people will get is some sort of a cohort, uh, um, cohort ID or cohort taxonomy. And then the fourth is around measuring measuring digital ads, um, which is on everyone's mind. Um, currently, the proposals are around uh, aggregate data, uh, allowing people to have um, or select the types of data that they want. They won't be able to, um, to gather all the data points that they currently have. Uh, those signals would have noise, they would, uh, and they would also be delayed. So this is going to have a big impact on the economy because we are so used to real-time signals to make decisions and optimize campaigns. Um, this would cause a between anywhere between 24 to 48 hour delay of those signals. So if you go into the next, this is kind of like all the different proposals are at least uh, from the, um, from the uh, overall perspective from Google themselves, um, all the different APIs that they're looking to create for Privacy Sandbox. Um, they have deprecate or they have uh, the flock uh, testing has ended. There was one on first party data sets. Um, there's currently some origin trial, which is there uh, allowing developers to test some of these APIs for both trust token and conversion measurement API. A lot of feedback, but those are supposedly scheduled to end next month, next week. Um, so we're not quite sure if uh, they're going to allow for uh, more uh, a longer or extending those test campaigns. Um, we are, they are getting some feedback right now, and we'll probably have uh, flock testing and fledge testing again sometime this year. So that goes into the next slide. Uh, questions? Yeah, I, so from the um, deck that we've provided everybody as a handout, you can all see that these are links, very common uh, font style and, and whatnot. So if you have curiosity when you download the deck, you can follow through on each of these links for more information. All right. 
And real quickly, um, some bullet points on what we've heard about flock testing. It was only available in Australia, Brazil, Canada, and a few other countries, and as well as the US. Um, a lot of people were questioning if Privacy Sandbox complies with European regulation. Um, uh, Origin Child was not open to the European market because of GDPR, so they weren't able to test it out, but that was a, a point of contention in a lot of conversations um, that, uh, uh, that were being uh, presented back to Google. Um, Google was auto-enrolling sites into the trial. However, companies like Amazon and Brave and a few others did declare that they weren't going to allow for Flock, so they they were able to disable it, so sites can disable it. Um, again, Flock doesn't involve storing of any new information. Um, it's based on the browsing history um, and uh, was getting updated every week. So a, a person's browser would have a new Flock ID Um, regarding sensitive categories such as medical sites, uh, uh, political sites, and religion and all that stuff, those were excluded as part of the cohorts. Uh, Google recognized that um, and did not want uh, uh, any sensitive topics to be uh, uh, to be leveraged uh, for targeting. Uh, so they were uh, um, cohorts were. Uh, will be filtered out and not shared if the browsing behavior of its user has a high rate of visits to sites with sensitive topics. That kind of goes with that. Um, flocks composed of a minimum uh, of a minimum of users of browsers would be shared. I think the minimum was around 2,000. Uh, once, once a cohort got to about 2,000, that's when that cohort would be released for targeting. Uh, so many were complaining that the, the sizes were too small, that the, each flock ID didn't have enough scale, uh, so um, a lot of challenges there. And only, again, only about 5% of browsers were participating uh, in this. So Angelina, it sounds like Flock is sort of a replacement for audience segmentation based on cookies. Yeah, but it's based on um, the, well, originally the Flock IDs were, didn't have any labels. So they were about, but 3,000 different flock IDs. So companies would have to figure out which flock IDs would be best for them and for their clients. So, um, which, and again, the uh, it's it's grouping set of behaviors. So for me, you know, I do Facebook, LinkedIn, right? But I also look at AdAge. I do uh, some shopping on Amazon and so forth. And the flock IDs were being categorized as at the domain level versus the page level. So it was looking at the domain, um, taking in the signals and the taxonomy of those domains, and then looking at the patterns and then grouping me with others that had similar patterns to that cohort ID. Right. So as I, as a user of a B2B publisher site, let's stick to the ad industry. I think everyone would get that. You talked about ad age, just media posts, ad week, the drum, you know, there's a lot out there. And as I visit one of those sites, I would now potentially be identified and put into a cohort of people who visit advertising websites yeah. right? about the marketing industry and so on. And so the concept I'm trying to get across there is how that information is being shared. So B2B publishers, in my experience, are very leery to share data in the public, meaning with other B2B publishers or to advertisers even. And so the point of the flock in, a, in that concept is the data is going to be shared. Whether you, the publisher, know it or not, if people are visiting your website and they're tracking that by domain, they're going to get put into a flock ID of people who visit marketing and media websites. And then right. you can buy that flock ID. So if I now want to reach people who visit marketing and media websites, I, I programmatically buy that flock ID. <laughs> And now I'll see that person, you know, wherever they are on the on the internet. And so the concept there is that even though third-party cookies are going away, this is somewhat of a replacement, or Google's attempt at a replacement, right? Yeah, but you got to also remember that each person also probably has different behaviors. Like you and I would probably not be in the same cohort ID because I look at fashion sites and recipes where you don't, right? You might be looking at more sports sites. Um, etc. So there are nuances to each of the flock IDs. So it's looking at your overall history within the last seven days. Okay. So you might be in a cohort ID, like 
Um, I might be in a travel, like I've been looking at vacation, vacation destinations. So this week, so I could be in a different cohort ID uh, next week because of my so behavior you, this week. Like you wouldn't know what domains make up this cohort ID. You wouldn't know that. So it'll be like a, you'll have to continuously uh, test and research and ensure that you understand which cohort IDs present your audience. Right. So that will so, be that will be on the public on the marketers to understand that. Uh, like today, with third-party cookies and all, they get uh, direct information. Like this cookie was in this domain, this this page. Like they won't even know which domains uh, are part of log IDs. So and Angelina, Shelley, the mention was that originally the the flock IDs did not have a label, and now they have a label. And who's making the decision as to what to call it? We it's haven't seen that yet. There, there was, I think, one blog post or one podcast where it was mentioned. Uh, we haven't seen anything yet on okay. that front. So I you more or less might decide on a, on um. Well, the way that I think the 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 engineer had said that there might be a content taxonomy, like a a, a phrase or a term that's being used to bucket that user. So it might be. Ad advertising trade magazines would be one, uh, but again, it's only one. So there's no like, um, again, if your users are be, are doing other stuff besides visiting your publisher site, there that behavior is going to uh, be part might might just might they just might fall into a sports category or mm -hmm. a news category versus a specific type of. So the marketer yeah. then needs to track performance to decide if that flock, uh, flock ID is, is giving them a return on their investment. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but who's to say that Google wouldn't refresh those IDs as well? So you might be using one flock so ID. Changing. So today I might be in one flock ID, but two months down I may be in another flock ID, depending on my if my behavior changes. Like for example, if like Olympics happen, I suddenly start going to all the sports sites because for that month, I might suddenly get transferred to another flock ID because the machine thinks that I'm a sports uh, uh, aficionado. Mm -hmm. uh, although that's only temporary, and then six months later, I might come back to my advertising and media court right. once that uh, subs uh, that behavior sub subsides. Interesting. Okay. I'll advance I, here. You don't know the insights, like exactly how it's functioning and how how frequently it changes, and whether it's like a whether it's like a linear thing that's a continuous changing kind of right. spectrum, or is it like a, a stop and go, like they kind of evaluate after a month and they change flocks every month. But we don't know that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned, I said there was about 3,000 cohorts. I was incorrect. It was about 34,000 cohort IDs. Um, the potential was, uh, the conversations was that it could even be possibly 66,000. Um, again, a single co flock cohort uh, for each browser, and there could be, um, again, looking at 100 uh, different behaviors within the last seven days. Uh, again, a, a browser could only be in one single flock ID, and over time, that browser could uh, have different flock IDs over time. Yep. Um, advertisers will need to rely on the aggregate reporting uh, API to understand which flock values have a higher propensity to converting. Uh, flock IDs would not be exposed at an individual user browser level. So again, Chrome would actually provide reporting back to how each flock was Forming. Uh, users will be able to opt out of flocks if they wanted to. Uh, and then uh, again, when private uh, browsing mode, user flock IDs are filtered out. So incognito or opted out, uh, uh, no flock. So there's also other you know, terminologies that have been, have been uh, floating around. A lot of this is discussion within the W3C uh, business working group. So you've heard of turtle dove, parakeet, et cetera. It's just very confusing. So with all these different solutions, it's hard to keep up. Next slide. Well, just share with everybody WC3 so they understand what that is in case they don't. Uh, yep, so W3C is called the World Wide Web Consortium. Um, and that is, uh, that is a repository 
or, or a place where uh, the community can come together in this business advertising working group to hear about different proposals for privacy sandbox, get them vetted, um, uh, get people to testing it. So a lot, it's predominantly mostly developers and engineers that are on these calls. Um, and sometimes a lot, a lot of the stuff goes over my head because it's way too technical. Um, but that's where a lot of these conversations are happening. And so you've heard from Critio and Converse, uh, Critio and 51 Degrees. They've been very, Facebook have been very active uh, in these groups, um, either uh, providing feedback or different proposals to, to Privacy Sandbox. So this collection of words that you've displayed here are variants of what Flock is trying to accomplish? What Privacy Sandbox and Apple are trying to accomplish. Okay. Right. So they're alternatives. So part of it. Yeah. Right. Well, they're all yeah. different elements I mean, of the, how you can Yeah. The bottom line of all of these privacy initiatives is boils down to mainly one thing. Like they they want to make sure that uh, the 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 hooks or the data that the technology provides today, be it like cookies or be it IDFAs or other methods. Uh, or, or the kind of information that is available when uh, when a web interaction takes place, like you know IP address, some other signals in the HTTPS, like user agent and other information that 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 goes back and forth, uh, uh, location, for example. Um, so they want to prevent one is cross-site tracking. Like as a publisher, you can know whatever you want about your own user, but uh, mixing it with five other parties data or 20 other websites data that's kind of the key objective to uh, to stop that because that's what results in profiling a user and being able to uh, identify a, a particular user and their personal information across different environments so that's kind of like the, the the crux of all of this these initiatives is this that they want to make sure that you're not able to uh, identify or profile a user across multiple environments uh, and that's for the reason to protect the uh, a person's uh, privacy but even they still should my habits they should not know me directly uh, the, right. the the publisher of the website i'm visit, visiting they're not stopping them from doing anything they can pretty much do everything that they would be doing uh, it's that they just cannot they don't want this to go out and be shared across and that data be brought together and mixed together this, I mean, what? this predominantly from an av for for advertisers because that's where it happens, right? Where I'm tracking how many impressions are being served on your website, uh, and tying it back to a conversion on my site, um, and being able to tell, you know, what city, state you're in, what operating system browser you have, um, be able to uh, know what audience segment that you're in, um, and lots of different information uh, from from from. You know, and if I recognize that same cookie across other publishers, I, as an advertiser or I, or as a tech company, can start creating profiles. And that's really, you know, and, and that's being used to create lookalike models, prospecting lists, and that's where I think your 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 audience, your your publishers, have had a real challenge with programmatic feeling that hey, they don't want their audiences cannibalized by other data tech companies with, the, with the, the, that information being passed through in the bitstream. Right, so for the, the BPA media exchange, that's good news, so that as publishers participate, these privacy protections are really gonna make their inventory more valuable. But I did, I think I heard us say earlier on, and I think the B2B publishers would be focused on this, that if these defaults are now set so that the publisher can't tell uh, open rates on their own email newsletters or um, some activity on their websites. For, I understand the cross-platform, I understand the impact on the marketer and the advertiser, but I'm also hearing from publishers that there's a deep concern that they're going to lose their ability to look at uh, open rates, for example. Yeah, I mean, it comes with upsides and downsides. I think this is a pretty radical shift in in the in the in the landscape and we'll all have to work together to figure out the calibrations and um, how we make decisions going forward based on whatever 
um, data is available hmm. versus but what's I, been available in the past. So. But it would, I, I think it signals to me that registration for more of my web and e-products, digital products is important because I need to get that consent and that opt-in. Um, and, and would that now be circumvented by Flock you would or, get that. The, no, you would get that. Like if somebody yeah. is registering and if, if a publisher has their own consent and information that they want to collect from the user, that's not being stopped. So whatever yeah. like the publisher is doing for themselves and their users on their website or their app, uh, none of that is being stopped. Like even after the IDFA goes away, uh, the publisher still has IDFB. So they still have like an ID for vendor that's that's been there mm -hmm. for some time, but it's not mentioned much and not used much uh, but a publisher has like three websites and they can use idfp they can identify their users across these three different websites or three different apps and they would be able to still you know, use all of that information right so the and the, the point there is it's not first party data and cookies that are going away mm -hmm. it's the third party it's the third party and mixing of data profiling and being able to identify users from one place to another, uh, those are getting impacted uh, uh, in a way that they're not uh, uh, they're not as easy or uh, easily available through the tech platforms as they were. Mm. So publishers and others would have to figure out other methods of managing that. Mm -hmm. I think the the important part for the publishers is figuring out. You know, really evaluating their inventory, both their and looking at their first-party data, both their their site taxonomy, uh, their audience segments, and looking at you know being able to possibly collect more information from the user with permission, like preferences and interests, um, uh, and you know life stages and things like that, so that you can use that information to help create audience segments. Uh, what you're going to find is, I think advertisers are going to want to go back to direct buys or private marketplace deals versus being on the open web because by working with a publisher they can gain more insights about the audiences that they have and seeing if there's any possible if they're seeing any lift towards that audience segment uh, on their own properties um, mm -hmm. it's just going to be harder to you know with with technology and how the data is going to come about is going to be a lot harder for for advertisers to make decisions on where to actually spend their dollars because they're right. not getting yeah. enough signals back on what's working and what's not working. And for publishers like who have good experiences, sticky users, I think it's a pretty good upside that now they'll be sharing data with the partners they actually work with, they actually have relationships with and not just you know sending out a third party cookie that the whole world knows who a user is anymore. Right, okay. Okay, so how can companies target audiences and measure delivery and performance in this new world? Next slide. Well, that's, um, oh, actually this shouldn't be here, but let's keep going. Um, at the IAB, we're going to try and help answer those questions for, um, for the ecosystem. So we are actively uh, we're bringing together companies where we want to help identify some of the different uh, solutions that are out there um, and, and provide an opportunity for, com uh, for, for uh, companies to come together to, pro uh, to get educated, uh, be informed, and making sure that we're speaking the same language. Next slide. So under the programmatic and data center, we're strategizing on an approach for all these different solutions that you that I've presented, iOS 14, Flock, and Fledge. We're gonna crowdsource implementation ideas on, on a testing framework, and then hopefully uh, be able to bring some of those results back into this work, uh, this task force that we have, and uh, publish those results in aggregate um, so that we can help build some sort of consensus a consensus in terms of feedback, POVs, and such back to the browsers, the platforms, and the industry. So this new task force is called the Browser OS Ads Testing Task Force. Next slide. Um, so if you're interested, um, 
uh, in this in being part of this uh, task force, uh, uh, your responsibilities or what what we what we would ask uh, our members is to help establish some of those KPIs, um, some of those approaches to help build out specs and requirements, provide and share your POV, your results, and then help us also develop some deployment strategy guides and and so forth. Uh, next slide. Uh, we are going to meet about once or twice a month. Um, I have another meeting scheduled towards the end of this month, uh, around October 20, uh, 28th. So if you're interested, everyone is welcome to join. Um, and and uh, be, uh, we're, we're happy to include anyone from marketing, ad ops, data analytics, legal compliance, basically anyone across the board who's really interested in all these changes that are happening. Um, and if you're interested, just email me. Yep, that's right. Uh, email me at data at IAB.com. Again, the, the, the objective is to collaborate, test, and share. And as you can see, we're trying to um, you know, bring everyone together. We have about 100 companies already participating. I mean, 100 people uh, participating across about 80 different companies. Uh, things that we're, we're, we plan to learn, what are the business and financial impacts of Apple OS changes? How can companies scale and maintain efficiencies? What can marketers and publish do to target and remarket to their uh, audiences? And, um, and what type of new tech standards are needed? Do we need to update any current ones or build out new ones? And that helps to feed the work that um, into the tech lab. Uh, other things is how can we measure campaign effectiveness? So what matters most, viewability, clicks, or conversions? I think we're gonna have to put a stake in the ground um, when this happens. I think it's probably gonna be more around viewability. Hopefully it's not just around clicks. Um, but it's going to be a combination of both. What kind of data is going to be available? How are you going to access that data? And what can you do with that data? And then what are some of the business implications when it comes to measurement, brand safety, fraud, and things that we have to consider? Those are just some of the questions. There's probably a lot more. Great. So we're up to Q&A. Um, I know that we've got, I can see some chat flashing happening, but before we do, if you could just take a moment, Angelina and Shelley, to talk about IAB and IAB Tech Lab and what the differences are. Um, I'm not so sure our membership are familiar with Tech Lab being something separate from the IAB. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can take a shot of that. I, I cover that in my Tech Lab intro presentations everywhere I go. Okay. Uh, so IAB Tech Lab technically is a, is a distinct separate organization. We are a separate registered body. Uh, the difference between the two is that uh, uh, IAB Tech Lab was uh, kind of created out of IAB, mainly IAB US, uh, way back in late 2014. Um, and uh, the purpose of uh, IAB Tech Lab was to uh, look after all of the technology foundations and technical standards that are required. And the main difference being that uh, all the IABs, there are about 46 IABs across the world, uh, are, uh, uh, are regional or country specific. So they kind of look at uh, policy, uh, business, uh, research, which can all be very uh, country specific because of uh, regulations, because of culture, because of the government and the construct. Uh, of the industry that that how they operate there. Uh, so that's what IAB looks after, all the IABs look after. So they look at the business side of uh, the advertising and marketing industry, uh, the policies, they do the local research uh, that can vary from country to country, the behavior of people can vary from that. And then they provide like best practices and guidance, et cetera, on how the business should operate. Uh, we on the tech lab side are, um, are more, are entirely focused on the standards, the technology that underlies, that underpins the marketing and digital advertising industry. Uh, and our charter is global. So we are not, uh, we, we don't have multiple tech labs. There's only one uh, IAB tech lab. Uh, we have members uh, across the world because the technology uh, kind of knows no borders. Uh, so a person in USA, a person in Africa, a person in Vietnam is using the same Chrome browser uh, and will have to deal with the same privacy sandbox uh, everywhere uh, or are using the same uh, iPhone or the same Android uh, Samsung phone that's that's across the world. So that's the core difference. Like our charter is global. We focus on the technology versus IABs, their charter is more uh, country or region specific. 
and they they focus on the business and policy and research cool thank you for that and then you know the connection with bpa is that iab tech lab hires us to confirm that people comply with the standards or guidelines whatever they are so i mean most recently the guidelines for podcasts uh and the one that was used for data labeling you know we got involved and we, yeah and so we certify that companies follow not self-declare but they're actually third-party verified that they are in fact complying with the iab guidelines standards however you want to call it and they, they can get certified so that's that's our connection uh okay glenn schutz do we have questions from the audience yep we've got a couple uh the first how many flock ids are there Fifty thousand. i think uh it was thirty thousand um mm. potentially could be sixty thousand but it, it's all uh there it's all being reevaluated. so um the initial concept was about thirty thousand up to sixty thousand but we'll see what the next iteration of uh flock is going to look like in the next few months okay and along the same lines, uh, will users know that they're part of a flock? Uh, I believe that there is transparency in the browser settings, so they can opt out or opt into flock, flock being being flocked. Yeah. I don't know if right because they might get a flock ID. Just they might see what flock ID they they are or whatever. If that's the case, if they keep to this ID concept. Uh, they might see what the flock id is but again there is no translation to what that flock id is only chrome knows what those groupings are uh but no one else would know uh any any char uh any characteristics of of a flock id you've been flocked <laughs> that's all they know <laughs> you've been flocked. you can either be flocked or not flocked yes or no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um okay another one uh, just to be clear, there are no restrictions to advertising just using our first-party data, correct? I'll let Shaley take that. Could you repeat that, please? Yep. I will uh, there are no restrictions. See if it is showing me a flock ID or not. <laughs> so mine's not actually in part of the testing. My, mine, it says inactive flock right now. <laughs> Um, so there are no restrictions to advertising just using our first party data, correct? Yes, there are no restrictions. Uh, the only restrictions would be from regulations that you have the right permissions from the users based on the uh, regulatory region that the user is from. Great. Uh, a couple more. Uh, how do I learn more about the trust tokens for publishers? Uh, so privacy sandbox link that's there in the document and I think there's a direct link to trust token also that uh, that is there in, in one of the uh, handouts and we're going to talk about that at more length next time that's the part two that Shelly's going to do uh, a big lead on that when we have our part two which is on Wednesday the we'll get to that moment the 20th of October yeah, but, yeah, but probably not that trust token Glenn because uh, I'm still waiting to see more details from the oh, trust okay. tokens so I'll okay. I'll still like do like talk about like the the concept as to what it's right. supposed to be. All right. Well, while those questions coming along, let me just forward that to talk about that next session. Then, so it is it is Wednesday the twentieth at noon, and it's our part two, um, and some of the things that we're going to look to solve or address or inform about is this privacy sandbox going to impact collecting open rates on e-newsletters. I've heard from several publishers that that's a concern. Um, perhaps at that time, Shelley, not to um, give it away today, but we could talk a bit about DigiTrust. What was that? So, did, yeah, so DigiTrust does, doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um, so do you, I can cover well, what it was. No, but, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll tease the audience and have them come back. Um, Unified ID 2.0, you know, what's that all about? We'll talk about that on the 20th. Yeah. Uh, what an identity graph is what's the value prop for b2b publishers to share first party data we do think that that's that's a big opportunity so we'll talk a bit more about that on the 20th and then what can publishers do you know in that new environment and how can they best monetize it mm -hmm. so glenn you got any more one more uh this okay. is actually for you glenn does bpa offer any privacy boilerplate language to its members after compliance is achieved Short of that, are there some printed resources you could direct us to so we can plan our compliance? Uh, there, yes, we have BPA's I Comply 
data privacy or privacy and data protection. And that's a service that we offer, but it's, it's more of a gap analysis first as to where are you vis-a-vis -vis whatever the regulations are that you think you need to be compared about, but say GDPR or California or what's happening in Nevada or, or any of the other states that now have regulation. So the first step is a gap analysis. Where are you in your current practices and how you document those practices vis-a-vis -vis what the regulation is? And then from that, the gaps get pointed out and you can take it to the next level in terms of how do you solve for that? How do you fill those gaps? How do you become totally compliant? Um, and so what we're seeing now, a couple of publishers have reached out to me uh, saying that they're now getting requests from their advertisers, considering the publisher to be part of the advertiser supply chain. And they're asking the publisher, where are you on compliance with all these various regulations? And so through the I comply privacy and data protection seal, uh, the publisher is able to uh, do once and use many times in terms of being certified once and then using that certification for all of the advertisers who might ask, you know, are you compliant with all these various regulations? So that information um, is there, it's, it's on our site. And whoever it is who's asked that question, if you need more information, you know, there's my email address, just let me know and we'll get you uh, what you need to see on I comply privacy and data protection. Thanks for listening to this BPA University podcast. For more BPA University podcasts, visit iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.